coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our very good friends at Alumni Hall. Guys, I was just in Alumni Hall earlier this week, and they have a ton of new spring and summer gear on the shelves. If you haven't checked it out in a while, now is the time. Make sure to jump in on that while you can and get yourself outfitted for all this warmer weather that is coming our way very, very rapidly. But I am your host, Tyler, and I am back today, guys, with another edition of the Friday Five. I think it's been a couple of weeks since I've been able to get one of these out to you guys. I was heading out of town last weekend. That kind of got in the way of things. Had to pack. Had to get everything all set up, ready to go. But we're back. We're back this week, guys. Got five more topics that are all Georgia-related in some way, shape, or form that have caught my attention over the course of the past week. First, and before we dive into that, let me just say, first off, thank you. Thank you to everyone who has already taken me up my call to follow me on my new personal Twitter account, which is at Tyler Graves, G-R-A-V-E-S-C-F-B. I will put that handle in the show notes, so if you can't make out what I'm saying, if you get what I'm saying, if you can't find it, I will put that link out there on uh, in our show notes. Also, I do have it pinned to our Glory UGA Twitter page at the top there. If you just go to uh, our profile there, you'll see at the top where it's pinned. It will have a link to that new personal Twitter account that I've got for you guys. I've had a lot of people over the past couple of months, past couple of years, kind of begging me to start my own personal Twitter account. I've resisted that. But what the heck, now's the time. Let's go ahead and get this thing rolling. And it's just going to be a way for me to give you guys more content. That's really what it is. It'll allow me an opportunity to kind of cover things and discuss things and throw some ideas out there about things that maybe I wouldn't typically cover on our Glory UGA account. Glory UGA account still there. It's still going. That's not going anywhere. So you follow me there. Keep following me there. But my personal account might give me a chance to kind of branch out a little bit and discuss maybe some different things slightly outside the world of Georgia sports. Still heavily rooted in college football, college basketball, the college sporting world. But yeah, I think it'll be fun. And uh, thank you again to everyone who has already hit that follow button. And if you haven't, no worries. No big deal. Now's as good of a time as ever. But thank you guys. I really, really do appreciate that. All right, let's go ahead. Let's dive into the five topics I've got on my list today. And I want to start with something that I was pretty adamant about on our week three spring practice recap episode what Curtis and I did earlier this week once I got back from vacation. But I kind of want to double back on it because I've talked to some people since I've gotten back in town. And um, yeah, I feel like I need to kind of update my thinking on this process. I wanted to bring that to you guys. But we're talking about the quarterback situation, which if you remember back to our episode earlier this week, I was pretty adamant following the the, uh, first scrimmage of the spring, particularly when it came to Kirby Smart's comments in his post-scrimmage press conference, that this is going to be Carson Beck's job, that Carson Beck is the guy. I was very, very adamant in saying that. In fact, I think I said, I think I used the word convinced. I'm convinced now more than ever that this job is going to be Carson Beck's job. He's going to emerge as our starting quarterback. However, while I would still, based off what I've heard about the battle over the past couple of months, not just the past week or so, I would still project Carson Beck to win the job ultimately down the road. But I am going to walk that back a little bit, at least walk back 
the level of confidence in which I asserted that Carson Beck like, is absolutely going to win this job. And let me explain why. I don't want you to think I'm just flippy floppy here and just going back and forth. Like, no, the, let, let me explain myself. Okay, just give me a chance here. Full disclosure, again, as I've said several times this week, I was out of town last weekend, which means I was a little bit removed from my usual sources, particularly when it comes to like what I would get after a, a scrimmage. I did watch Kirby's press conference when I was out of town. But like I was out of town, I was on vacation, I was doing things with my wife and just I wasn't like fully dialed in 100%. I was dialed in, but not like maybe as fully dialed in as I would normally be if I was here in Athens in town. So I didn't really hit up any sources while I was on vacation on like what was going on behind the scenes. Well, now that I am back in town, back here in Athens, I did that, had a chance to kind of to to get a little bit more information on some of the things that are maybe going on behind the scenes. And what I have heard is leading me to, again, like not completely flip here and say, oh, like, no, this is Brock Vinegar. Like, he's going to, he's the favorite now. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just going to walk back my confidence that Beck is going to win the job. At least a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. Again, I'm so, as of right now, based on what I've heard and what I know, I would still project Beck to be that guy, but it's a competition. Like things happen. So I'm going to walk it back a little bit here. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. What I have been told really for uh, you know a couple of weeks now through all the spring practice, and it was kind of reiterated to me this week, is that our coaches like ideally want Carson Beck to win the job. And I know that sounds weird. Like why would our coaches want him to win the job? Like are they playing favorites here? No, that's that's not what I'm suggesting. The reason the coaches want Carson to win the job is because they believe, since he's been the system the longest, that he has the best grasp of the offense, like intellectually. And Kirby said as much in his press conference that, that Carson, like he, and that was one of the reasons I was so confident back on Tuesday when we recorded that, that recap episode that Carson was going to be the guy. Is like when Kirby made very clear in that press conference, like decision making, demeanor, master of the offense, all those things. That's what I put a premium on more than anything when it comes to making a decision on who's going to be our starting quarterback. And then when he was giving his rundown on the strengths of each of the quarterbacks in this competition, that is exactly how he characterized Carson Beck, that he understands the system, he knows what to do with the football, all those kind of things. So that's what I, you know, I, I was fully reading into that. And that was also on top of what I had already been hearing all spring long. So I was like, okay, now like I just, I've been hearing this from sources from different people. Now I'm hearing Kirby say these same things. I'm hearing from other sources. So like, this is Carson's job, right? Like that's why I was so confident in saying that earlier in the week. But there was something else that Kirby said in that press conference following that first spring scrimmage last Saturday. Towards the end of that press conference, really when he was responding to the question of like, hey, what are you looking for in your quarterback? Like, what's going to be the deciding factor in your decision here? And he was talking about how, you know, master the offense, trust, decision-making, all those kind of things. And at the end of that quote, he also stated how important it was to him for our quarterbacks to avoid what he called, quote, bonehead plays. And here's the problem for Carson Beck, because... Recently, especially on Saturday during that first scrimmage, which our coaches do put a lot of emphasis on because that's as closest to actually a game thing that you're going to get in practice leading up to the season. They put a lot of emphasis on performances during those scrimmages. Now, that's not they're not always the decisive factors, but they, they do play, play an outsized role in how the coaches go out determining position battles. They absolutely do. And in that scrimmage, you know, Curtis and I, we talked about it on, on Tuesday, Carson did throw three interceptions, okay? Carson threw a couple of picks. One was returned for a touchdown. I think it was by Javon Bullard, if I remember correctly. 
And uh, that would be the definition of bonehead plays, right? Pick sixes. So Carson had more than his fair share of those quote-unquote bonehead plays in Saturday's scrimmage. But uh, here's basically what I was told. Like uh, getting back in town, hitting up some sources, those kind of things. What I got this week is that as Kirby was alluding to in that press conference last Saturday, Carson does have the best grasp of the offense in terms of like reading coverages, understanding where to go with the football in our offense, checkdowns, all audibles, all those kind of things. Like he just has more of a command of the offense overall. All the stuff that you that that you can put on full display in a meeting room. Like you can see that like, oh Carson knows what he's talking about. He's been in the system longer. And you can, maybe you kind of expect that, right? But here's what I was also told. While that is true of Carson, his execution of the offense when the bullets are flying has been inconsistent at times this spring. It has not been aligned with how well he appears to grasp the offense and how to play that position in a meeting room, which is why you haven't really seen him so far this spring start to pull away with this job. Like he, on one hand, he's showing the coaches, hey, this guy knows his stuff. Like He has mastered this system, but then you go out on the field and it doesn't always translate sometimes it does like sometimes okay Carson like this this is what we're talking about this is why you're going to be the guy but then you know a couple plays later you're going to have what Kirby calls those bonehead plays and that's kind of what's kept him from really pulling away in this competition but again I've been told several times the coaches think Beck is closest to being ready to be the guy so they're going to give him and they have been giving him every chance to be the guy but he's got to earn it. Like Kirby's not just going to give him the job. Kirby might think deep down like he's the one that's closest to being ready, but you've got to go out there and earn it with your play on the field. And the fact that his play has been up and down on the field, there's been some inconsistencies there. That has opened the door for Brock Vandegrift to have a real shot at winning this job. And Curtis and I talked about it earlier this week, but I'll reiterate it here again for those of you who might not have heard that on, on that episode, might not have a chance to listen to that episode yet. My take on on this quarterback competition in general has just basically been, okay, Carson's further ahead right now, especially in knowledge of the offense and experience, all those kind of things, right? So for Vandegrift to rise up and take this job and to win this job outright, he's just going to have to be like flat out, obviously, 100% head and shoulders better than, than Carson Beck to the point that coaches and observers and teammates just simply cannot deny it. And to do that, he's going to have to catch up at least to some degree or at least close the gap with with Carson when it comes to mastery of the offense, understanding how to go through coverage as a system, all those kind of things. And to his credit, what and I haven't seen these guys on the field. And that's why it's so hard for me to really project this battle since we've seen so little of these guys. We've seen more of Carson, but that was in garbage time. And it was really just last year. And I thought Carson did some really good things in that garbage time last year. I thought he really showed that he could be the guy that could lead this team. But that's still a very small sample size. And Brock, we basically have no sample size whatsoever. And, and Gunnar Stockton, same thing. Gunnar's I'm not going to say Gunner's not in this competition. He's been given opportunities, you know, but he's not really working with the ones. The ones, you're, it's it's still Carson and and it's Brock and and maybe they'll they'll throw a, a small 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 couple of snaps here and there to Gunner. But Gunner's working, you know, twos and, and and primarily with the threes right now. Now maybe when we get to fall camp, if if it's at that point where neither Vandegrift nor Beck have really pulled away with the job, maybe when we get to fall camp. 
you, you, you'll see Gunner start to get more of an opportunity to get some reps with the ones. Maybe you'll see that if he has a little more time to develop and, and, and whatnot. Maybe, maybe. But right now, like he's not, I don't really consider him a legitimate threat to win the job right now based on the fact that he's simply just not getting reps with the ones. But anyway, my point is, it's really hard for me to handicap this battle because I just haven't seen the guys out there on the field in college games with any sort of consistency. I mean, again, a little bit of Carson Beck, but not really much to base a decision on, right? to base a projection on. So it's, it's really difficult. So I'm really relying heavily here on sources and kind of like reading between the lines when I hear Kirby talk, all those kind of things. So that's why it's hard to project. But anyway, to his credit, I'm going to give Brock credit here. What I've basically been told is that he's really improved in his understanding and knowledge of our offense. Now, is is he at, at Carson Beck's level when it comes to understanding our offense and mastering it? Like, no, I, that's, he's not there yet. Like, that's not what I've been told, but I've been told he's, he's closing the gap at least, and that's what he needed to do. And he's making good decisions. He's making plays. And and I have said this about Vandegrift. Um, I'll, I'll continue to say this. So again, still projecting back to win the job as of now, based on what I've heard. It's always subject to change. I'll give you guys what I hear. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm giving you what I've heard. But I've always felt like Vandegrift's ability to make plays with his legs, that gives him something that Carson Beck simply cannot match. And I think that gives him a puncher's chance to win this job because our coaches do value that too. I mean, one of the main reasons Stetson Bennett held on to that starting quarterback job in 2021 was what he was able to do with his legs, extending plays, getting out of bad plays, and just really putting stress on defenses in a way that J.D. Daniels just simply could not do. And Stetson... His legs were huge for us in a couple of games in 2021. His legs were even bigger for us in 2022. So I know our coaches value that. I've just always felt like, and basically what I've been told, is that they value master the offense above that. And that was the thing with with, with Stetson and JT when JT was still here back in 2021, is that you know Stetson had at least as good, if not a, if not a better mastery of our offense than JT did, and so if all things are being equal on that front, then you go with a guy who hasn't been losing games and also can do things with his legs that the other guy can't do, and that's why Stetson was able to hold the job, and one of the main reasons the coaches stuck with him. Right now, I would say that it's not, again, based on my understanding, Carson and Brock are not quite on the same level where they're master of the offense, so that's why I don't know if Vandergriff's legs are going to come fully into the into the decision-making process right now until he can continue to close that gap more. Maybe he will. Maybe he will. But his legs certainly, they certainly give him maybe even more than a puncher's chance to win this job. But again, I just go back to it. I've just felt that Beck's experience and, and his level of mastery of the offense was just going to be too much to overcome. Um, I'm still projecting that to be the case as of right now. But it does look like Vandegrift is closing that gap. And to that point, he did earn more of an even split of snaps with the number one offense this week. You know, basically the first couple of weeks, like Kirby said they were both repping the ones, and they were. But behind the scenes, what I was told is that, yeah, they're, they're both repping with the ones, but Carson's getting about, you know, 60 to 65-ish percent of those reps, and, and Brock's getting a bunch of reps, but he's not getting, you know, equal equal reps to what Carson's getting with the ones. This week that changed, and it was tangible evidence that Brock is is closing the gap. Now I was not told a hundred percent that he like was to the point where they were splitting reps with the ones completely evenly, but I was told that Brock got far more of a share of the reps of the ones than he had been getting the first couple of weeks of spring practice. So that again, that's just tangible evidence that that Brock is closing the gap. Not that he's won the job, not that he's taking the lead, but that he he's making his case. He's he's certainly uh, closing that gap. 
So just wanted to update you there. I know that sounds like I'm completely contradicting what I said on Tuesday's episode, and I guess in a way, I kind of am, again, still think that Beck's going to win the job. I'm just not as confident now after uh, hearing from a few sources over the past couple of days once I've gotten back in town. And uh, look, I you know I could be that dude that just sticks with what I said just because I'm going to stick with what I said as a matter of principle. But you know things change, guys. In a competition, things change. And when they do, when I hear about these things, I'm going to try to bring it here to you as quickly as I can and update you on those developments. But all right, guys, before we move on, I do want to circle back, and I want to talk a little bit more about Alumni Hall. Again, I was in there, got back in town, uh, was running a few errands, and of course, one of the first places I stopped was Alumni Hall. It's a problem, I know. But guys, they do. They have a bunch of cool new stuff out there on shelves. They have the new Nike Coaches UV workout shirts, so obviously had to pick up one of those, got a nice gray one. They've got a ton of Georgia baseball gear, RIP, we'll get that a little bit later, but hey, still got to support the guys, right? A ton of Georgia baseball gear, got the early season polos out there, so got some national championship gear for you guys. If you're still in the market for that, I mean, you can never get enough national championship gear. I feel like every time I go in there, even though I've already got a ton of of Natty gear, it's like, I, I can't help but come out with something, right? Whether it's a uh, a, a car sticker or whether it's a coffee mug or a polo or a sweatshirt, whatever. I got to come out with something. I just, I can't help myself. Again, it's a problem. It's a problem, but I guess it's a good problem to have. I mean, when your team wins back-to-back national championships, I mean, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You're, you have to buy these things, right? But anyway, guys, Alumni Hall, if you're in the market for Georgia gear, it's a no-brainer. It's a 100% no-brainer. They are the best option anywhere on planet Earth, so make sure to check them out today inside the Epsbury Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, let's move on to item number two here on my list today, and I'm sure a lot of you have probably caught this on social media, saw it somewhere along the lines this week, but if you haven't, CBS Sports released a list of all the football recruiting expenses for all the teams around the country, from all the different conferences around the United States of America. And as you might imagine, here's where we bring George into it, your two-time defending national champion Georgia Bulldogs were at the very top of this list, this college football recruiting spending list. And they, they dated it back to 2017, and they listed out that each year, 2017, 18, 19, 20, 20, 22, how much did each team spend in each individual year? And then they had the grand total and an average. Well, Georgia was like head and shoulders above everyone else. Like it, it really wasn't particularly close. Like here's the list, guys. Top 10, Georgia, Bama, Tennessee, Clemson, AM, Michigan, Texas, Oklahoma, Florida State, Penn State. All the teams that you would expect to be in the top 10, right? In terms of how much they spend, because these are the teams that are routinely in the top 10 when it comes to the final 247 composite recruiting rankings. Huh, funny how that works, right? But not only were we number one, again, we were number one with a bullet, man, by a wide margin. So Bama was number two, we were number one. We spent over the past five, actually, past six seasons, back to 2017, six seasons. We spent a grand total of $16,518,859 on recruiting expenses. Alabama at number two has spent a grand total over those same six seasons of $11,472,302, like to the dollar. And then Tennessee's at $10.7 million. You got Clemson at $9.9 million, so just a hair under $10 million. A&M at $9.4 million. You got Michigan leading the Big Ten at $8.1 million. Texas, uh, soon to be in the SEC at $7.8 million. Oklahoma at $7.5 and so on and so forth down the list. So again, 
we were not just the top list, like far and above the team that spent the, the program that spent the most money on recruiting over the past six seasons. So what does that mean? What What is the relevance of this? Well, I think what it tells us is that you get what you pay for, like not just with Georgia, but all these teams in the top 10. Again, there's a reason why these teams that I just listed out for you are routinely the top 10 recruiting teams in the country because they're 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 committed to it. It's just that simple. You get what you pay for. And I think something else it tells us, it gives us a little bit more insight into how our program has elevated itself into a new stratosphere in college football. I, I think into a tier all of its own, at least right now. Things always change in the landscape of college football, but right now, like we are, I think we are in a tier of our own as two-time defending national champions. And I think there are two basic reasons. I think you really boil it down. Is it more complex than this? Sure, of course. But I think in general, there's two basic reasons why we have been able to elevate ourselves into this new stratosphere. Number one, I mean, you got to start with Kirby Smart. Like it starts with Kirby Smart. It's no coincidence that our program started to ascend the way that it has almost immediately after he took the job. I know, you know, we had to set the culture in 2016. It was a little bit of a, of a bumpy road there, but in year two, we were rolling and we have not looked back for a second. So Kirby Smart, I think, is at the top of the list. But the second thing I would say here, and this is what I think that this recruiting spending report that CBS Sports put out is, is evidence of, is that we have a very strong institutional commitment to winning at the highest level. You don't spend over $16 million on recruiting and recruiting alone over the course of six seasons if you are not fully committed as an institution to achieving the highest levels of success within the sport. You just simply do not. And it shows us that there is, it's not just, it's not just commitment. Yes, commitment. Our, our, our athletic department has committed financially to our football program in a way that it never really did under Mark Rick. That's, and I hate that for Mark. I think Mark was a fantastic coach. Yes, we know things got stale towards the end, but he never had this level of institutional commitment to, to what he was trying to accomplish. There wasn't the full alignment, right? Well, now there is. That, that's the other word I look for here. It's not just commitment. Yes, that's certainly a part of it, but it's alignment with what Kirby Smart is trying to do with our program. That's why Kirby Smart has to be the first thing you mentioned in terms of trying to explain how we've elevated our program because he's the one that really kind of spearheaded this institutional commitment. Because, like, let's be real, guys. It was kind of contingent upon him taking the job. He made it very clear into the job, like, these are the things I need. This is what I expect to have in order to compete at the highest level. If you want to win, if you want to, to to dethrone Alabama, which we have done, here's what it's going to take to do that. Now, to our athletic department's credit, they have done it. They've done everything Kirby Smart, Smart wanted and more, and that's where the alignment comes in. That's what this is evidence of. It's evidence that our athletic department is committed and aligned with its head coaches. We know our head coach is demanding. Like We know he demands the best, and that's what this is evidence of. Now, here's the other thing, guys. I, I want to talk about this a little bit. You know, of course, when you see reports like this published, you know, rival fan bases, which they have spent the entire offseason doing and they're going to continue to do, they're going to try to tear our program down any way they can because um, they don't feel good about themselves. They have a really hard time handling the fact that they are inferior to our program. And uh, when you can't handle that, you can't really face reality. What do you do? You, you try to rationalize and you try to make sense of it. You try to make up reasons, make yourself feel better and try to explain away why Georgia is better than you. It's not that Georgia's actually better than you. It's that, you know, they're cheating. They're doing things in, in a shady way, which, come on, guys, well, like whatever. Now, here's what the detractors have said on social media. I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen this, but in case you have not, basically what, what's being done here by 
opposing fan bases who simply just cannot find it within themselves to to just applaud George. It's like, you know what, guys, good job. Which, you know, they're, they're rival fans. I don't expect them to do that. But what, what's being pointed out is that Georgia isn't getting much bang for its buck because, you know, Bama spent $6 million less than we did over the past six seasons and have had four number one recruiting classes over that time span to our two. So clearly, you know, Bama is just a superior program because they can recruit at that level, recruit better than Georgia, even though they're spending significantly less than what Georgia is spending in order to put those classes together. Well, all right, all right. On the surface, I see where you're coming from on the surface, right? But that, that's where these conversations in. Like all these rival fan bases, these, these small-minded people, they operate on the surface. They, they don't have the capacity to go deeper than that. But my question for those people is this. How have those recruiting classes, those higher-ranked Alabama recruiting classes, been playing out in the field, huh? How have they been playing out in the field, right? Well, what I've seen is that you know, Alabama's still really good. I'm not going to say they're not. But what I've seen is that Kirby Smart has elevated Georgia above Nick Saban's Alabama program. Like That's undeniable right now. Like, I'm not saying like, over the span of you know 60 years. I'm talking about over the span of the last two seasons. What has happened is the University of Georgia has surpassed Alabama. We are the king of the mountain. Despite all of those allegedly superior recruiting classes that Alabama has been putting together. And they've been great recruiting classes. Again, I'm not here to trash Alabama and say they're not good. They haven't been recruiting well. They are really good. They're still good. And they still recruit at a really high level. But again, those recruiting rankings aren't exactly translating to the field of play. Because Bama, yeah, like past couple of years, they have recruited slightly better than us, at least in terms of like the 247 composite ranks, like slightly. There's, we're certainly within the margin for error there. But if you look at recruiting rankings, which again is what a lot of these, these fan bases do, they don't want to go beyond the surface. Yeah, Alabama has, uh, has recruited slightly better than us. But how has that played on the field? We keep winning. And Alabama is winning a lot of games, but they're not winning championships they're losing to Tennessee and they're losing to LSU and they're losing to Georgia in the national championship game could it possibly be I don't know guys just spitballing here could it possibly be that we have used that extra six million dollars to enhance our valuation process just is that possible yeah sure like like you know Alabama's one we're two we're splitting hairs there but maybe we're just evaluating better. Maybe we're spending that money and we're saying, you know what? Yeah, Bama's racking up all these top 100 guys. But we, we all know this. Recruiting rankings are an inexact science. And what have we done? Well, we have hit on an abnormal rate of our low-rated recruits. Guys like Jordan Davis. Guys like Lab McConkey, Guys like A.D. Mitchell. Guys like Javon Bullard. Guys like Dejon Edwards. What are Bama's recruiting success stories like in terms of guys that were under recruited and and, and three-star prospects that were undervalued that have become big stars you know those diamonds in the roughs like where are those stories for Alabama you don't really see them why not well Bama doesn't really sign those three-star guys they just go they sign these highest high rated guys which you know there are a higher percentage of those guys that do pen out than three stars for sure but just because a guy is a high four star or five star doesn't mean he's necessarily better then one of those three-star guys. I mean, let's just take Ja'Cory Brooks, for example, for instance. Like, Ja'Cory Brooks, you know, receiver for Alabama, was a, was a top 30 guy. He was a five-star prospect. And Alabama, of course, had to sign him. He's a five-star guy. Alabama gets these five-star receivers. But then a guy like A.D. Mitchell, who was ranked over 300 spots lower than Ja'Cory Brooks in the same recruiting class, 
has been significantly more productive when he's on the field. He's been a better player. I don't think anyone would really argue that. Hell, Lad McConkey has been a better player. Lad McConkey was the definition of being an undervalued, under-recruited player. We are simply evaluating at a much higher rate than really anyone in the country. And I just use Alabama for example because, like, you know, that's a team that's here in second place, and that's why I've seen a lot of people point at and say, "Oh, well, well Alabama's out recruiting Georgia, but they're spending significantly less money." So, like, like is Georgia actually really do anything? What does it say about Georgia? And, and it's it's not just evaluation. Like, obviously, there's there's development and coaching within our program, the culture within our program. Sure, all those things matter. That's and those are parts of what goes into allowing some of these lower rated recruits develop into big time players for us, but you simply cannot ignore the evaluation component of that on the front end and money helps with the evaluation. Now, our coaches, I put a lot of faith. I give them a lot of credit for their ability to evaluate players, but they get a lot of help guys. And that's where this money goes. It's not just flying coaches around the country, which is certainly part of it, but it's also hiring people, hiring support staff, recruiters, putting them on your staff. So not only are they like, they're not just talking to players and they come on visits. They do that certainly, but you've got guys, their sole job basically is just to sit there as recruiting analysts and just pour over film. And you're trying to look for anybody that fits the criteria of what the coaches have laid out. Here's what they'll tell you. Hey, here's what we want in our players. Here's what we're looking for. Go find these guys. And I do not freaking care what their recruiting ranking is. Just go find me these guys. And it takes money to do that. But at the end of the day, really, what gets me most excited about seeing these numbers is it tells me one thing, one very, very, very important thing. We ain't going anywhere, guys. And just like Kirby Smart you know, after, after the National Championship game in SoFi Stadium, one, two, no. Wants that third one, right? And it's not even just the third one. We want that fourth. We want that fifth. And who knows what will happen this year. Maybe we don't get the three-peat. I hope that we do. And we're, we certainly have a shot, a very good shot at that. But even if we don't win it this year, we aren't going anywhere because we have the institutional commitment. We have the alignment throughout our entire program, our entire organization. And Kirby Smart, as long as he is our head coach, he will not allow us to fall off in terms of commitment financially, in terms of work ethic with the people inside the organization, in terms of culture, in terms of entitlement, all those things. We are we are set for a long time, guys. Like I, These are the glory years. Live them up, absolutely. But I, I truly believe that we are on the front end of those glory years. All right, guys, I got one more quick football item for you. Again, I'm sure a lot of you saw this. I'm going to give you some quick thoughts on it. So Jalen Carter, man, it's been a very rocky draft process for Jalen. I hate it for the guy. Obviously, we know the legal issues stemming from the, the very tragic accident with Devin Willick and Chandler LaCroix. Um, Pro Day did not go very well at all for Jalen. And his stock has, has certainly been affected by that in, in a negative way. I mean, I think it was last week there were reports out there that specifically the Oakland Raiders had taken him off of their draft board. Now, whether that's true or not, whether it's smoke, who knows these things. But there were reports that he that he has been taken off the Raiders draft board. They have the, they have the number seven pick. And then those reports were followed up by other reports that there were even more teams that have taken Jalen off of their draft board, which I think is insane. Because Jalen has been, uh, I, I know, the speeding I, I and the racing, that's dumb can't do it man simply cannot do it very very dumb i'm not absolving him from from responsibility for those actions but jalen's not been a dude that's gotten in trouble his, his entire career man again I, I go back this is a dude that could have just walked away mid-season and said no nah, i'm fine man and he would have been a he would have been a first round draft pick probably a top 10 draft pick but he didn't he got hurt twice got hurt twice in a money season for him and he came back to play he came back to play for his teammates and to win another national title. I don't forget things like that. 
And if you want to pass up on a prospect of, of that caliber, of that kind of talent, all right, man, that's on you. Good luck. Good luck. And when Jalen Carter really pans out and becomes one of the best players in the NFL, good luck answering those questions with your fan base and, and your owner. And um, I guess you'll be finding another job pretty quickly. But this week, the news was coming from Drew Rosenhaus, the former agent of Trell Owens. He was like a celebrity agent there for a little while. Kind of, I don't want to say fell off the map, just wasn't out there as much as he was when he was T.O.'s agent. But he is, he is Jalen Carter's agent. And uh, he revealed that he is not going to have Jalen meet with any teams that are picking outside the top 10. And there was some blowback for this. You know, obviously there's all the naysayers out there. It's like, you know, this guy's draft, his draft stock is, is plummeting right now, man. Like, like, how dare you be that arrogant, that entitled, to not meet with anybody outside the top 10? And But then Rosenhaus went on the Pat McAfee show, and I loved his response, man. I loved his answer. He was just very straightforward. He's like, Jalen's not going outside the top 10. Like, I don't care what reports you're hearing. I do not care. Jalen Carter is going to go inside the top 10, and I'm simply not going to have him waste his time meeting with teams outside the top 10. Because Rosenhaus' position was pretty clear. He's like, I've talked to all these teams. I've talked to these GMs, these front office guys, and all these different teams inside the top 10 have assured me that if Jalen is there, when they pick, he is not getting past them. So I have absolutely no issue with it whatsoever. Jalen Carter is going to be a top 10 pick. Now, is he going to be the number one overall pick? Like, I think he had a shot to be once upon a time. No, I think that ship has sailed. Looks like it's probably going to be C.J. Stroud maybe right now is the latest report that I heard. We'll see how that pans out, and things always are going to change when it comes to the NFL draft. He, but he's not going to be the number one pick. I don't even know if he'll be a top five pick. Now, I think he's a, he is a top five talent. I mean, I think he's more talented than Trevon Walker was, at least in terms of polish and, and, and his production at the college level. So I think he's, he's certainly worthy of the number one pick overall, but I understand there's some baggage that comes with, with his recent legal issues, history, I guess. So I get it, but all these people that were, I don't know if outrage is the right, right word, but maybe, you know, kind of some of these people that were questioning this decision and criticizing Jalen and calling this an arrogant decision. Like, get out of here with that, man. Like Jalen Carter, like he, he's going to be a top 10 pick. Sometimes you just have these people that just, they just try to find a reason to be offended by something, upset by something, and find a reason to criticize something because I guess that's what sells. That's what gets clicks. And I think that's an example. I think this is an example of that, you know, over the past week or so. I don't, I think it's a lot being made out of, out of, out of nothing, to be quite honest with you. All right, guys, got a couple more things for you here. Let's move away from the football field for a couple of minutes, these last two topics. And uh, I hate to do it, man. I, I don't. I don't like to have these conversations because I don't like to have to criticize our teams and our coaches and our players. I really strongly prefer not to do that, but you also have to be objective, man. You got to call a spade a spade. And right now, the Georgia baseball program, at least the 2023 Georgia baseball team, is dead. I mean, they're dead. It's done. It's like, put a fork in them. It's over. It's done. I mean, guys, we are we are one and eight in conference play right now. We are dead last in the SEC. And our pitching has been the primary culprit, which is exactly like my biggest fears coming this season about our pitching staff have not only proven to be true, but they've been proven to be even more true than I thought was going to be the case. Uh, and let me give you some numbers to back this up, guys. I mean, I, God, this is, it's scary. Like it, like what I'm about to read, guys, like this is, um, this is for mature audiences only. We are no longer dead last in the SEC and ERA. We had been for a little while there. We are now 13 to 14 teams, but get this, guys. Again, mature audiences only. Cover the ears of any children in the vicinity. Our ERA is a whopping 
6.45. Our team ERA, 6.45. Now, guys, that's more than double what the best teams in the in the league are doing right now. Tennessee, for example, 2.72 team ERA. South Carolina, 2.98. Kentucky, who got to play this weekend at home, probably going to get swept again, 3.11. Vanderbilt, 3.21. LSU, 3.5. Here we are sitting here at 6 point freaking four five era opponent batting average again not dead last so there's something but once again 13th out of 14 teams opposing teams are hitting 269 against our pitchers and this is what has been the most maddening aspect of it all guys like if it, what why are why do we have an era a team era of six four five well um we can't stop giving away free bases and it makes me want to gouge my freaking eyes out i it's very i watch these games as i watch all these games i at this point i'm getting to the point where it's like oh my god this is not good for my health this is not good for my mental health right now it's not good for my sanity but i, I still do it and it still drives me absolutely insane it's been a trend not just this year this goes back to last year guys it was a major problem for us last year not only like it, we we were getting like killed, you know, in terms of like, teams just crushing baseballs, but we were just giving away so many free passes, and it's continued this year, guys. We have walked a hundred and forty six batters on the season in twenty nine games. A hundred and forty six batters in twenty nine games. Again, more than double what the best teams in the league are doing. Tennessee, 69 walks. Carolina, 81. Bama, 96. LSU, 96. Vandy, 104. 146. And on top of that, guys, we're just we're just beating people all over the place. We've hit 45 batters this season alone. 45 batters that we have plunked in 29 games. Do the math there, guys. That's more than a batter a game that we are hitting. Every single game, we're guaranteed to hit somebody. Every single game, we are guaranteed. What's the math there? We're guaranteed guaranteed to hit, what, 1.5 batters a game? I mean, seriously, guys, turn on a Georgia baseball game this season, and you are guaranteed to see one of our pitchers hit somebody. It's going to happen. The easiest money to possibly be made in the history of the world. Just go on my bookie, find that bet they got out there, and I'm guaranteeing you it's it's money in the bank. But this team is dead. The offense is, is cooled off when we got an SEC play, which always ends up happening. But we're, we're still like middle of the pack to the top half of the SEC in, in all these major statistical categories, whether it's batting average, home runs, slugging, all these things. Offense has been fine. That's not the problem. The problem is the pitching. And it's been the case for two years now. It's it's so crazy because you go back three, four, five years ago, and it was the exact opposite. Like The pitching was elite, and the hitting was anemic. And now we've just completely flipped the script and we just, we can't get it right. Like we cannot put it all together. And you guys know me. I I hate to give up on teams. I really do. But I mean, you can only watch so many games and and see the same things happen over and over and over and over again. And at some point you got to wake up and realize, okay, yeah, we're dead. Like this is just who this team is. I keep waiting for us to wake up. And you know, some of those early losses in in the conference, you know, we were, we were right there. We blew it late in the games. Our bullpen's freaking awful again, again. But that's just who we are. Like it doesn't matter if we have a lead. Like we're just we're gonna blow it. It's just it's just who this team is. And at this point, like we are dead. It's not a matter of of are we dead? We are dead. It's just a matter of how dead are we? Are we just gonna completely bottom out and finish dead last in the SEC? Or are we gonna dig deep and, and find a way to get to some sort of respectable record by the end of the season? Right now, I don't have a lot of hope. I, again, the, the the hitting gives me some hope, but I just if you can't get anybody out, man. It doesn't matter. It just simply doesn't matter. 
And far too often, that has that has been the case. In fact, that's been the rule. That has been the rule, at least when it's come to SEC play. And we were fine in non-com play, but, I mean, guys, it was an open secret. Like, our, our non-conference schedule was an absolute joke. It was an absolute joke. Yeah, we took two out of three from Tech. Tech's not good this year. I'd say, hey, it's great to at least beat Tech. At least take a series from them. I'll take it. But our non-conference slate was an absolute cakewalk. It was a joke. And we couldn't even sweep those teams. We did not sweep one single team in the non-conference, guys. We're talking talking about teams like Charleston Southern and Georgia State, Georgia Southern, Kennesaw. We're talking about teams like Jacksonville State. We're talking about teams like Princeton. I mean, guys, we could not sweep even one of those pathetic programs. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. So what does that say? If they're pathetic, what does that say about us, man? I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's not great. And I, I we'll see how it plays out. But guys, if, if this continues and we bottom out and we finish dead last in the SEC, I think that's going to uh, bring up a very, very, very serious conversation about the future of Scott Strickland. If he can get back to respectability, I think he can hang on for another year. But if we bottom out, and we're just the laughing stock of the SEC, I'm not sure he survives. I'm really not. And honestly, I'm not sure that I want him to survive at this point. If, if it comes in, that's why I'm I'm still trying to reserve judgment. But at this point, it's really hard to go ahead and cast that judgment based off what I've seen through the first three series in conference play. I guess there's more to go. So we'll see. We'll see if the team can bounce back. So I don't, I don't want to make a a definitive statement there, but I'm getting closer and closer with each passing week to just saying, all right, guys, it's it's time to cast judgment. I'm not quite there yet, but it's, it's um, let's just say it's trending in that direction. But you know what, guys? I'm going to throw a quick little bonus topic in here for you. So it, it's not fun to talk about Georgia baseball right now and where we are. I don't like doing that. So uh, let, let, let's talk about something positive here for a second. The Georgia softball team is absolutely on fire right now these girls won 11 in a row before they lost to kentucky on sunday but took two out of three in that series kentucky is a top 15 team we've won 12 of our last 13 and 16 of our last 18 we are now up to number eight in the country we have a huge top 10 series on the road in 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 fayetteville against arkansas this weekend but but this georgia softball team tony baldwin has done an absolutely incredible job with this team and I think they have a shot to make the College World Series. I, I think they have a legitimate shot to make the College World Series. I haven't had a chance to take in a bunch of their games. I've watched a couple of them. But um, I'm excited to continue to watch this team down the stretch because as bad as the, of a watch as the baseball team has been, the softball team has been that much fun. So I, I'm really rooting hard for these girls. I think we have a shot, guys. I mean, there's still a lot of, a lot of ball left to be played. But I think this team has a shot to, to, to make some noise once we get to the postseason. Speaking of noise, you guys know I can't let you go without talking up my Georgia tennis guys and gals. Georgia men's tennis, guys, we are back. The Georgia men's tennis program is officially back. I know we haven't completely won the SEC title yet. I understand that. Now, we used to win these just as, as a matter of, of, of principles, what we did. like we, It was just a rite of passage for us. It's been a couple of years. Uh, hit some down times, but Manny Diaz and Jamie have done a really good job getting this program back on solid footing. We've had an, an incredible group of, of seniors that have just been just so much fun to watch. I know I've talked about them and wax put about them many times, but Phil Henning, Shrimp Ride, uh, Britton Johnson, Blake Crowder, these guys have put Georgia Tennis back where it needs to be. And then we got all everything freshman Ethan Quinn on court one, who's finally given us that dominant court one player who absolutely can be anybody in the country on court one. And I don't know if any of you were able to make it out last Friday. I, I So I had to, here's the thing, I had to catch a flight uh, out of town Friday night. It, it was leaving at like, what, it's supposed to leave at like 9.55, no, 
10.55. I think he was supposed to leave at 10.55. Yeah, 10.55 originally was when he was supposed to leave. So the George tennis match, the men's tennis match in Kentucky was a top 10 matchup. Huge match, huge match. Kentucky's been really good the past couple of years, and they're really good this year. I think they were number four. Yeah, they were number four when we when we played them last weekend uh, inside the Damagill Tennis Complex. And I uh, I had to go watch the match, man. So I, I went, I took all my stuff, packed all up, put it in my car, went over to the Damagill Tennis Complex, watched as much of the match as I could. I had to leave uh, to catch my flight. Left around like seven initially, and as soon as I got in the car. My wife was like, "Hey, like, just let's just check to make sure it's you know it's kind of, the weather's kind of nasty. Let's just make sure the flight is on time." So we drove a little bit, got like to the loop basically, and I pulled it up and I was like, "Oh, dang, our, our flight's been delayed like an hour, like the 10:55." And we just looked at each other and we're like, "Yeah, obviously we're going back to the match." So we went back, we watched the rest of the match, and it was God, it was unbelievable, man. Like over about 2,500 fans in there, just going absolutely insane. If you were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you weren't there, man, you missed out. I've been trying to tell you guys. I've been trying to tell you. It's incredible, man, especially a big match like that on a Friday night. Absolutely electric. Sanford Stadium's in a world of its own, obviously, on on, on campus here in Athens. But they're outside of Sanford Stadium, it's the best atmosphere that there is on campus. I'm just telling you guys, it is. It is. And you might not believe me, but just 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 trust me on this. Just go out there, and if you don't take my word for it, just go out there. But our guys, uh, our men's team is undefeated in conference. We, we, had a, we scheduled really tough in the non-conference to open the season, and uh, we had a little bit of a rough patch there, so we lost a couple of matches, and so that's why we've kind of been working our way back up in the top 10. We're number seven now, but we are undefeated in the SEC. Not only are we undefeated, we have a two-game lead on, actually a three-game lead on the next two teams because Tennessee and Kentucky, at number two and three in the league, they both have two losses. Well, we've also beaten both those teams, so we have the tiebreaker of them, so in, in effect, we have a three-game lead on them, but we have another massive match. If we win this match, it's a done deal. We will win the regular season in the SEC, and we're going to win it going away, but we have to play on the road against another top-10 team against the South Carolina Gamecocks on Friday night. South Carolina is very good. We beat them once this year in the National Indoor Tournament. It was a, it was a really close match, 4-3. They have two really, really good singles players. The Carolina program has been really good over the past couple of years, so it's going to be a formidable challenge for us, but it's a challenge I think our guys are up for. Even if we lose this match, not the end of the world, we still have have a good solid lead in the SEC, and after this matchup, our schedule, we, we do have to go to Florida. Uh, Florida is a good team. They're not as good as they have been in the past couple of years. Um, losing a guy like Blake Shelton and Sam Rafis, that will certainly do that to you. So that won't be a cakewalk in Gainesville. Like We'll have to go out and earn that one. But if we can get one of these two matches this weekend, I, I think we can get both of them. But if we can get at least one of one of these two, then we close up the season against Mississippi State and Ole Miss at home. And we're going to win. We absolutely should win both those matches. And if we do, then uh, we win the SEC regular season and we'll be the number one seed in the SEC tournament. And I like our chances. I mean, there's some good teams. Tennessee's good. Kentucky's good. South Carolina's good. Florida's a good solid team. Um, so you never know what's going to happen in a tournament setting, but uh, I always put more stock on winning the regular season, and it looks like we are in very, very, very good shape to do that. Now, the women had a really tough loss uh, on Sunday to Texas A&M on the road. A&M is really good, guys. Like It's basically Georgia and A&M uh, in the SEC on the women's side, and A&M is really, really good. Uh, it ended up being 5-2. That was our first loss in conference play. We were 8-1. We, were, we, were we won today. Uh, match got moved over of inclement weather coming in. Uh, we, we beat a, a good South Carolina team. Have really two good singles players on, on one and two. We beat them. Finally won a doubles point, which we had not been. I think we had lost like six or seven doubles points. That's been the kind of the bugaboo on the women's side. It's like we just have really struggled in doubles, but we're so dominant in singles that it hasn't mattered. Well, it hurt us against a We lost a doubles point. And when you lose a double point against a, a real, an elite team that has elite singles players up and down their lineup, it's really tough to win. 
four to six singles matches, and that's kind of what we ran up against against AM. But we did lose that match 5-2. That doesn't really do justice to how close it was. I was out of town, but I was actually watching as much of that match as I could on my phone. My wife and I were, were certainly trying to watch as much as we could, and I, I can tell you, like we, yeah, we lost 5-2 to the final score. Kind of misleading, though, because the... The last two matches that were lost, like we were right there. In fact, I, I would argue that we kind of blew those last two matches. So it easily could have been a, a four three, or maybe we could even, even like we could have won four three, we lost four three, ended up being five two. But I believe that we will see Texas A&M again in Fayetteville in the SEC tournament, and I absolutely a hundred percent believe that we can beat them. And I, I really hope that we get that matchup. I really do because I think our girls can can beat them if we're given another opportunity. But either way, men's side, women's side, both are rolling this season. The SEC both still have shots to win the SEC championship, and it's going to be just a, a, a hell of a fun time this postseason. Also, real quick, guys, before I get out of here, I have to throw this out there, okay? I, I don't know how many of you pay attention to me when I'm talking about Georgia tennis. I don't know. But if you're still listening, and you've listened to me talk about Georgia tennis the past couple of years, I have said on a couple of different occasions that Meg Kowalski is, she's currently a senior for the women's tennis team. I, I've said multiple times on here, on social media, to anyone that listen that she is my current favorite Georgia player of on of any sport on campus. I absolutely love this player. I mean, she is just everything that you want a Georgia Bulldog to be. She, like we talk about DGDs, damn good dogs. She epitomizes what a damn good dog is. This girl is the best teammate that I think I've ever seen out there. She fights like crazy. She is not the most talented. She's talented, but she's not the most talented out there. And she's small. I think, I don't know, 5'3", maybe, 5'4". I don't know. I'm not good at those kind of things, but she's short. It was funny. She was standing next to Dasha Vinmanova, who's like 6'3", uh, who plays court 2'4". She was, by the way, getting better and better at every single match. I mean, she today... Uh, the girl she beat from from South Carolina, uh, Sarah Hamner, she was number one for a lot of the season last year. She was a freshman of the year. She's awesome, and she ended the season number four in the singles rankings. Dasha destroyed her today. Like it, it I think it was six one six two. It was not even close. Maybe six one six three, but she completely controlled that match. She's getting better and better. I mean, like she's getting really really good. Excited to watch her play, but. Seeing Meg standing next to Dasha, it was like Dasha's like four feet taller than her. It's insane. But anyway, beside the point, Meg is awesome. Um, and she des- deserves your support. It is her last regular season home match this weekend, which means it's senior day. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep it together. I'm not going to be honest with you guys. I have loved watching this young woman play over the past couple of years. Just the joy she brings to sport, how she lifts her teammates up, how hard she fights, how hard she plays. It has been nothing short of an absolute joy to watch her play. And um, it, it's we're not going to say goodbye yet because we got the postseason. I think this team is set to make a long run. But uh, we're going to say goodbye to Megan in, in regular season tennis inside the Dan McGill Tennis Complex. And... Um, that's tough. Meg is awesome. So, guys, she deserves it, man. Not just her. I think Leah Ma is, I mean, Leah, I think, could come back from the year, but I think she's probably going to go for I don't know, but I, I know that Meg is leaving. Like, Meg is done. She's exhausted her eligibility, and um, she deserves it, man. Like, again, I, even if you don't really follow Georgia Tennis that closely, this young woman deserves your support. She has been an absolute force for us and been an absolute baller, a hell of a teammate, and one damn good dog. So if you get a chance, guys, this weekend, I know it looks the weather looks kind of nasty out there Friday and Saturday, but Sunday is supposed to be solid, supposed to be a nice day. So come on out there. It's free. It's fun. It's awesome. We're playing Florida, and Florida's solid. Like they're a good team. They're a top 20 team. They're number 17. Get a chance to watch Meg go out and, and beat the Gators uh, in her last home match, uh, regular season home match here inside the Damn and Go Tennis Complex. So just want to put that out there, guys. 
Come on, support our ladies, and uh, let's pull them through to a victory over the Gators. All right, guys, that's all I've got for you here today on the Glory UJ podcast. As always, I sincerely appreciate each and every one of you taking time to listen to our show and support us today and, and every other time that you listen to the show. And again, if you get a chance, I would really appreciate it if you would give me a follow on my new Twitter account. Again, that's at Tyler Graves CFB. But all right, guys, I'm out of here. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>